Heaven has its heroes, but seldom does this world recognize them as such. More often than not, the people God calls champs, the world calls chumps. Christian author A.W. Pink observes, It is a strong proof of human depravity that man's curse and God's blessing meet on the same person. And such was the case with the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a mighty man of God, faithful even in the midst of difficult, severe, hard circumstances, yet he was despised and rejected by his contemporaries. Even in the final throes of his nation's judgment, when it became obvious that everything Jeremiah had predicted would come true, the princes of Judah still tried to shut him up. King Zedekiah throws him into prison where he remains until Jerusalem is destroyed. Tonight, we're going to read about Jeremiah's plight and the fall of the city of Jerusalem. Verse 1 of chapter 34 provides us a setting and establishes for us a time frame. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army, all the kingdoms of the earth under his dominion, and all the people fought against Jerusalem and all its cities. Now the Babylonians invaded Judah and Jerusalem on three occasions. First, in 605 B.C., at that time, King Jehoiakim was replaced by Nebuchadnezzar with his son, Jeconiah. The second invasion took place in 597 B.C. when Jeconiah was taken prisoner to Babylon and he was replaced again by Nebuchadnezzar with his uncle, Zedekiah, a pro-Babylonian puppet. Now this Zedekiah, who was installed as king by the Babylonian ruler, Nebuchadnezzar, Reigned for, I believe, 11 years. The problem, though, is that he had a pro-Egyptian court. At the time, there were two superpowers in the world. There was Babylon to the east. There was Egypt to the west and south. There were two parties as a result in Israel, the pro-Babylonians. Let's make a pact and a treaty with Babylon. And there were the pro-Egyptians. No, let's side with the people of the Nile with the Egyptians. Zedekiah was a pro-Babylonian ruler, but his court was pro-Egyptian. Eventually, his counselors influenced Zedekiah to ally himself with Egypt and revolt against Babylon, and that was a major miscalculation with devastating consequences. You see, the Babylonians didn't think too highly of treason. And in 586 B.C., they launched their third and final invasion of Jerusalem. The Babylonian troops destroyed the city of Jerusalem. They led its inhabitants captive to Babylon. They killed Zedekiah's heirs. Then they plucked out the king's eyes. So the last sight that he saw was the death of his own sons. For 40 years prior to that occurrence, Jeremiah had sounded the alarm. In fact, here in chapter 34, verses 2 through 5, he repeats the warning. Jerusalem will be burned. Zedekiah will be brought to Nebuchadnezzar. No one will escape. Sadly, Jeremiah's warning once again falls on deaf ears. One of Judah's sins was their disregard for Hebrew slaves. Under the law of Moses, if you couldn't pay your bills, you could sell yourself into slavery in order to work off your debts. I don't know if that would be a blessing or a curse, depending on who you owed money, I'm sure. But after six years, the slaveholder was required to set free the Hebrew slave. At the time, though, many of the Jews were refusing to set free their slaves. That is, until the Babylonians came calling. With judgment knocking on their doorstep, they decided to reconsider. They decided, well, maybe we better obey the Lord. And so they made a covenant. They cut a deal with God. If God would save them from the Babylonians, then they would obey. In a moment of panic piety, they released their Hebrew slaves. But as soon as the Babylonians disappear, guess what? They renew their cruelty toward their brothers. 
Chapter 37 will tell us about a brief reprieve that occurred during the siege of Jerusalem. When the Babylonians heard that Pharaoh Hophra had deployed his troops to the region, they went to engage the Egyptians. But it was a temporary break in the action. For after the altercation, the Babylonians returned to renew their siege of the city of Jerusalem. In the meantime, the Jews had violated their covenant with God, and they had taken back their slaves, and they had proved to be seasonal saints. You know about seasonal saints, don't you? When trouble comes, they'll serve the Lord. But when the dark clouds vanish, they're right back to their selfish ways. Some people call it jailhouse religion or panic piety, or escape hatch commitment. God wants permanent piety. He wants an all-weather devotion. Hopefully the tread of your faith grips the road in rain or snow or heat or under any circumstance. A true faith is good under any conditions. For many of us, it was a crisis that brought us to Jesus. And that's okay. But hopefully now we serve the Lord because we have fallen in love with Him. Chapter 35 begins a two-chapter flashback. And it spotlights on the Rechabites. Now the Rechabites were an interesting clan. They were not really Hebrews, but Kenites, a branch of the Midianites. You see, they were descendants of Jethro, Moses' father-in-law. You remember... When Charlton Heston left Egypt, he ended up in Midian where he met and married the beautiful Yvonne de Carlo, or Zipporah, as Moses called her. Zipporah was a Midianite. And apparently, the, this branch of Midianites, the Rechabites, were as godly as Yvonne de Carlo was beautiful. For three centuries, they kept a special vow. They were nomadic teetotalers, you might say. Here was their vow. They drank no wine and they lived in tents. It was an intense commitment, you might say. (laughs) Their vow sort of spotlighted to the rest of the society that this world was not their home that they would refuse to indulge in its pleasures, that they would live for the joy of heaven. The fact that they never settled down was unsettling to their peers. The Rechabites had been obedient for 300 years. These Hebrews that observed them couldn't be obedient to God for three months. Most people have two goals in life, pleasure and treasure. The descendants of Rechab abandoned both. They lived for heaven, not earth. Rather than cultivate a taste for distilled spirits, they longed for God's spirit. You know, God wants us to be spiritual Rechabites. That doesn't mean we can't buy a house and settle down, nor does it mean we can't enjoy legitimate pleasures that God brings our way But we just need to remember that our job is to remind people what they're missing without Jesus Christ. Our lives should point them toward heaven. The life we live should bear traces of God's joy and His love and His peace. The Rechabites exemplified the fact that you could live for God even in difficult times. That was important during the days of Jeremiah. I think that's important today. Does our life make that same statement to the people around us? Also, in the days of Jehoiakim, God told Jeremiah to write the prophecies that he had been given in a book. God expresses his hope in chapter 36, verse 3, when he says, It may be that the house of Judah will hear of the adversities which I purpose to bring upon them, that everyone may turn from his evil way, that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. Hopefully, Jeremiah, if you'll write it down and they see it in print, maybe they'll believe it. When the book was complete, Jeremiah gave it to a stenographer named Baruch. Baruch took it to the temple. 
And he read the book to the people. And it did have a stunning effect. In fact, one of the royal princes heard it. And he brought Baruch to read it to the king's court. They too were rocked and shook by the message. And they knew they needed to take this scroll to King Jehoiakim. They tell Baruch and Jeremiah, though, to lay low until the king reacts. It didn't take long for the king to reveal his reaction. For after hearing just three or four columns, he grabs the scroll, he takes a little pen knife he has with him, and he shreds the scroll, he tosses it in the fireplace, and he sits there defiantly watching the word of God burn to a crisp. That shows you where Jehoiakim was at. How it must have broke the heart of a merciful and gracious God who was extending to Judah and its king one final opportunity to repent. And yet the king totally disregarded the message and actually shredded the book. I'll never forget in high school, while playing in a basketball game, someone broke into our locker room. They intended to rip us off. But that's not all that they did. I had a little pocket Bible that I carried with me. And whoever it was that broke into the locker room took my Bible and ripped the pages out of it and just sort of shredded my Bible and threw it all over my locker. I thought, what kind of a person would rip up a Bible? In my mind, I pictured some frenzied drug addict with bloodshot eyes, frothing at the mouth, acting in some crazed state, you know, shredding the Bible with his bare hands, almost animalistic-like. But here is what I've learned since. The people who are most likely to shred a Bible are not the crazed lunatics. No, they wear the uniform of credibility and education. Three types of people are prone to rip apart a Bible. First, the liberals. Second, the liars. And third, the lukewarm. The first culprits are the liberal theologians. Rather than use a pen knife to cut up their Bible, they use a tool called higher criticism. Nothing higher about it. It's a low-down, dirty trick. They try to undermine the Bible's authority by suggesting that parts of the Bible are inspired and some parts are not. And they have the audacity to set themselves up as the arbitrator to choose what they will and won't believe. The most blatant attempt at this liberal's butchering of the Bible occurs every four years when a group called the Jesus Seminar meet to refine their opinions on what portions of the Bible are authentic and what portions are fabrications. Of course, their so-called scholarship is a farce, and it flies in the face of the historical facts. Their conclusions are contrived. Their motives, trust me, are sinister. They remind me of the atheist grandson who challenged the faith of his elderly grandma. Grams, how did Jonah possibly survive in the belly of a whale? The old lady replied, I don't know, but when I get to heaven, I'll ask him. That's when the kid smarted off, what if Jonah isn't in heaven? And she said, well, then you ask him. (laughs) Liberals will cut up the scriptures, but so will the liars. The cults are also culprits. The penknife is out every week in the kingdom hall and in the Mormon temples. People will deliberately manipulate the Scriptures to make it support their false claims. Errant versions of the Bible doctor problematic passages and twist the translation to fit preconceived themes and interpretations. The New World Translation, for example, the Jehovah's Witness Bible, is bogus. There's no scholarship to support it. The Book of Mormon isn't history. It's fiction. It's fantasy. It's the baloney from Moroni, trust me. But the most subtle form of Scripture slicing is done by supposed Bible believers who've become selective in their faith. You might say the lukewarm. They'll claim to believe the whole book, but there are passages they won't touch 
And from a practical standpoint, they've eliminated them from their Bible. Go to some churches and you'll never hear the word sin or repent. You'll never be challenged with the lordship of Jesus and the demands of discipleship. Go to some churches and you'll never hear about the rapture and the soon return of Jesus. Some pastors will never deal with Acts chapter 2 and the power of the Holy Spirit. (coughs) They'll preach the great commission each week, but they're guilty of the great omission. For if you're going to be a bold witness for Jesus Christ, you need the supernatural gift-giving power of the Holy Spirit. You see, Paul told the elders at Ephesus, I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. The whole counsel. When a pastor picks and chooses what he wants to teach, he can be guilty of cutting up the Bible and never delivering the tougher sections. We need to be careful ourselves when we go to the Bible that we don't just gravitate toward our little favorite passages, our little pet portions. And ignore the whole of the book. Don't let your highlighter become a penknife. Not only did the king burn Jeremiah's message, but he got kind of hot at the messenger. For in chapter 36, verse 26, he sends a hit squad to arrest Baruch and Jeremiah. But I love what we're told. The Lord hid them. Guys, the Lord takes care of his own. You remember when God called Jeremiah to be a prophet, he told him, he promised him that he would deliver him from the kings of Judah and its princes. And that's exactly what God did. I also like what happens in verse 28. God instructs Jeremiah to make another copy of the book. You see, rulers will come and go, but God's word will abide forever. It is indestructible. As A.Z. Conrad writes, century follows century. There it stands. Empires rise and fall and are forgotten. Dynasty succeeds dynasty. Kings are crowned and uncrowned. Emperors decree its extermination. There it stands. The Bible outlives, outlifts, outloves, outreaches, outranks, outruns all other books. Trust it, love it, obey it, and eternal life is yours. That's why I love this book. From January... 587 B.C. until August of 586 B.C., the Babylonians laid siege to the city of Jerusalem. For 18 months, the Jews were held hostage in their own city. Again, there was only one brief break when the Babylonians took time out to skirmish with Egypt. But it was during that respite that chapter 37 takes place. At first, King Zedekiah thought that the Babylonians' departure was their deliverance. But God tells Jeremiah that Babylon will be back. Jeremiah says to the king in verses 8 and 9, The Chaldeans shall come back and fight against this city and take it and burn it with fire. Thus says the Lord, Do not deceive yourselves, saying, The Chaldeans will surely depart from us, for they will not depart. For though you had defeated the whole army of the Chaldeans who fight against you, and there remained only wounded men among them, they would rise up every man in his tent and burn the city with fire. In other words, Jeremiah says, there's going to be no escaping this judgment. It is now a foregone conclusion. God has decreed it. During Babylon's brush with Egypt, God sent Jeremiah to the plot of ground that he had purchased earlier. You remember back in chapter 32, God told Jeremiah to buy a parcel of land. Now, on the surface, remember, the deal seemed foolish. The property was swarming with Babylonians. Jeremiah would never take possession of the land. And his act seemed foolish to the people around him. But his act was extremely important. Because in essence, it was an expression of his faith that one day God would return the Jews to the land and give them back the land that would be taken from them. During this brief break, Jeremiah goes out to investigate the land that he bought. But when he does, he gets arrested. And he gets thrown in prison on trumped up charges of treason. The man who clamps the handcuffs on Jeremiah is named Arijah the son 
of Hananiah. You remember Hananiah? Back in chapter 28, Hananiah was the false prophet who broke the yoke off of Jeremiah's neck. But in the end, the yoke was on him. He was the one who died in less than a year. Obviously, Arijah sees this as an opportunity to avenge his father's death and unfairly, unjustly arrests Jeremiah. Verse 15 tells us, The princes were angry with Jeremiah, and they struck him and put him in prison. Now, don't overlook that simple word, struck. An official Jewish scourging consisted of 39 lashes with a cat of nine tails. It was a severe beating. It literally tore your back into ribbons. Often the victim never survived the scourging. Jeremiah's back was turned into shredded beef. Then he was thrown into a dark, cold, damp, rat-infested hellhole called a prison. It was more like a dungeon. And verse 16 tells us, And Jeremiah had remained there many days. That's when King Zedekiah arranges a secret interview. Now, get this picture in your mind. Imagine the king, all decked out in his royal robe, sitting on an ornate throne, and across from him sits this bag of bones. He's shriveled. He's shivering. He's squinting. He's been in the dark. He's fresh from the dungeon. What a picture. What an interview. Zedekiah is an interesting study. Zedekiah was the consummate politician. Privately, he respected Jeremiah, but publicly, he kept his distance. It was not politically expedient to associate with Jeremiah. He was wise enough to recognize that Jeremiah spoke God's word, but he lacked the backbone to obey what Jeremiah said. Zedekiah was like the guy who comes to church. He respects the message but he lacks the commitment and the resolve to follow through. He keeps coming back, though, hoping that one day maybe the terms will change. But he never musters the courage to be obedient. It's been said a politician is an animal who can sit on a fence yet keep both ears to the ground. And this was Zedekiah. He was a wimp. Zedekiah was a man with big ears And no backbone. Jeremiah asked the king, Where are the prophets that said the Babylonians would never invade? Obviously now they're liars. Only Jeremiah had spoken the truth to the king. And Jeremiah asked Zedekiah not to let him die in the dungeon. And the king keeps him in prison, but he moves him to the courtyard. A little bit more pleasant conditions. And allocates him a daily portion of bread. Even from prison, though, somehow, Jeremiah continued to trumpet his message. In chapter 38, verse 2, he says to the people, Thus says the Lord, He who remains in this city shall die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. But he who goes over to the Chaldeans shall live. His life shall be as a prize to him, and he shall live. He's encouraging the people to commit treason, to abandon the city. God is going to judge it, to go ahead and surrender to the Babylonians. In essence, he is giving them their only hope, and that is to go ahead and surrender to the judgment of God. Think of Jeremiah's message this way. Let's say you're late for work, and you step on the accelerator. You're booking, man. You're doing 85 around 285. Suddenly, you noticed in your rearview mirror... A flashing blue light special. At that moment, you have a choice. You can drop that baby down in gear and put the pedal to the metal. You can play the Dukes of Hazard and try to outrun the state patrol. Or you can submit to the judgment you know you're going to have to face. If you pull over and accept your punishment... You'll pay a fine, but if you bolt and if you try to get away and get caught, 
you'll pay a much steeper fine. You'll probably lose your license. You might even get thrown in jail. Jeremiah is telling the nation Judah, you've been pulled over. If you submit to God's judgment and surrender to the Babylonians, you'll live to learn your lesson. But if you buck God's discipline and choose to fight against God, you'll die a hard death. Of course, the princes of Judah, who are telling the people to resist and to fight, don't like Jeremiah's message. They want to permanently silence the prophet. And I love how Zedekiah takes such a bold stand for someone he believes in. Verse 5, he says about Jeremiah, Look, he is in your hand, for the king can do nothing against you. Come on. Again, what a wimpy thing to do. What do you mean the king can do nothing against you? You're the king, aren't you? He could have stood up for Jeremiah, but he lacked the backbone. We're told in verse 6, So they took Jeremiah and cast him in the dungeon of Malchiah, the king's son, which was in the court of the prison, and they let Jeremiah down with ropes, and in the dungeon there was no water but mire. So Jeremiah sank in the mire. This was probably a cistern that had once been used to store water. Now the bottom was covered with a deep, thick, suffocating sludge. We used to have a fellow in our church who owned a company that cleaned out water towers and cooling tanks. And he described for me one day what we would expect Jeremiah to find at the bottom of such a cistern. Slime would be puffy, very light, very fine, which would make it impossible to wipe off. There was no way for Jeremiah to get the mess out of his hair or out of his eyes. It would just engulf him and create a claustrophobic feeling for the prophet. The mire also stunk. It gave off toxic fumes that would cause Jeremiah to be disoriented, to be uh, constantly nauseous, not really be able to discern what was going on around him. My friend also told me that Jeremiah's ordeal would be like diving into a septic tank. It would just be as awful as you could imagine. Also, keep in mind, they threw him into a mud hole to die. For long before he would starve to death, he would have died of hypothermia. The temperature in a subterranean cave is 57 degrees. You die in water that's 75 degrees. Remember, too, Jeremiah was probably in his late 60s, maybe his early 70s at the time. What a way to spend your retirement years. His wrinkled body would have been shaking and numb, buried in the cold slime. It's interesting, earlier in his life, Jeremiah would have complained. Back in chapters 12 and 15 and 20, (laughs) he did a lot of complaining. When he was persecuted, he grew impatient and indignant, and he wanted to quit. But there's no mention here of a sour attitude. It seems that over the years, Jeremiah had learned to rejoice in the face of adversity. Amazingly, he refused to get mired down in the mire. He had learned that God can bring joy and peace and happiness to our hearts, even in the mud holes of life. We need to learn to draw on God, even when we're let down, even when we're stuck in the mire. God is there with us. It was an Ethiopian eunuch, a man by the name of Ebed-Melech, who came to Jeremiah's rescue. Ebed-Melech liked liked Jeremiah, and so he interceded on behalf of Jeremiah to the king. He got the king to dispatch 30 men to lift Jeremiah out of the mire. And I love the mercy that this man showed Jeremiah. He supplied the prophet with rags and with cloths so that he could put them under his arms so that the ropes wouldn't cut into his tenderized skin. At the outset of his ministry, God had made two promises to Jeremiah. First, that he would suffer persecution. Second, that God would deliver him out of that persecution. And guess what? God had been faithful to fulfill both those promises. 
Did you know God's made the same two promises to you? We're told in the New Testament that all those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It's a promise. But he's also told us that he'll never leave us or forsake us. That we can trust him, that he'll be with us even in the mud holes of life. Again, Jeremiah advises Zedekiah to surrender, but he refuses to heed his advice. And Zedekiah confesses why in verse 19, he says, I am afraid of the Jews. And there it is in a nutshell. Zedekiah feared offending man more than he feared offending God. According to Jeremiah chapter 39, July the 18th, 586 B.C. was the infamous day that the walls were finally penetrated. It was the day the Babylonians entered the city of Jerusalem. The fall of Jerusalem is such a landmark event in Israel's history that it's recorded four times in Scripture. Here, Jeremiah 52, 2 Kings 25, and 2 Chronicles chapter 36. In verse we're told that Zedekiah tried to escape under the cover of darkness. He was captured, though, and he was brought to Nebuchadnezzar, who had been calling the shots in Riblah, which was an outpost north of Damascus. There, Zedekiah's sons were slaughtered, and his eyes were plucked out, so that the last sight the king saw was the death of his own sons. A blind Zedekiah was led to Babylon as a prisoner, led away in bronze fetters, chained. Which reconciles two seemingly contradictory prophecies. When you first read them, what's going on? In Jeremiah chapter 34, verse 3, Jeremiah had told Zedekiah that he would see Nebuchadnezzar face to face. But when you read Ezekiel chapter 12, verse 13, there Ezekiel tells Zedekiah that he would be brought to Babylon but he would not see the land. So how can on the one hand he not see the land, and yet on the other hand actually see the king of Babylon? The answer, because he saw Nebuchadnezzar in Riblah long before he ever got to Babylon, and by the time he got to Babylon, his eyes had been plucked out. Chapter 39, verse 8, sums up the destruction of Jerusalem. And the Chaldeans burned the king's house and the houses of the people with fire and broke down the walls of Jerusalem. It all happened just as Jeremiah had predicted it would many years earlier. How Nebuchadnezzar heard about Jeremiah, we don't know. Perhaps from a Hebrew prince by the name of Daniel, who was already a fixture in Nebuchadnezzar's court back in Babylon. But however he heard of Jeremiah, he makes an interesting offer to Jeremiah. He's willing to bring him to Babylon and set him up for life. He can spend the rest of his years hobnobbing with the Babylonian jet set. Do you think Jeremiah took him up on his offer? Not hardly. Not Jeremiah. It was true of Jeremiah as it was said of Moses choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. Jeremiah wanted to remain bound to the plight of the Jews for the rest of his life. He had prophesied of this judgment. Now he would endure this judgment with them. Now most of the Jews were taken to Babylon. But Nebuchadnezzar left behind three groups of Jews in the land. First, the very, very poor. Second, the refugees who had fled to surrounding countries, but now that the Babylonians were gone, had returned. And third, the freedom fighters who had come out of hiding out in the mountains, who had tried to wage a guerrilla warfare against the Babylonians, but had been unsuccessful. Nebuchadnezzar sets up a governor over the Jews that were left in the land. A man named Gedaliah rules from Mizpah, eight miles north of Jerusalem. And for a time, Jeremiah stayed there in Mizpah with Gedaliah. Now, this Gedaliah, he was good, but he was gullible. A Jew named Ishmael had returned from Ammon with orders to kill 
Gedaliah. Though the governor was warned of the plot in chapter 40, he doesn't really get the point until chapter 41. And there he literally gets the point because this Ishmael draws a sword and slaughters Gedaliah and a number of the Jews. Now the remaining Jews realize that this Ishmael's coup won't sit well back in Babylon. Remember, Gedaliah is Nebuchadnezzar's appointee. What's he going to think? You know, they've rebelled. They've been crushed. Now they're at it again. Is he going to come back and just obliterate the rest of them? And so they come to Jeremiah for advice. What should they do? And I like the statement that they make in chapter 42, verse 6. There they say, whether it is pleasing or displeasing, we will obey the voice of the Lord our God. Jeremiah, pray for us. And no matter what God says, whether we like it or whether we don't, we're going to obey it. That's what they say. So often, we pray hoping God tells us what we know in our hearts we're going to do anyway, rather than really be open to His will. We ask the Lord where He wants us to go for this year's vacation, hoping that He's going to confirm the vacation to Cancun. Hey, we don't want to hear about some mission trip to Rosarita. Or volunteering for kids. No, don't say kids camp. Notice in verse 7. And it happened after 10 days that the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Notice, even the godly prophet Jeremiah didn't get an instant answer to his prayer. He had to wait for 10 days over a week for God to supply the answer. Perhaps that's why we don't get answers to our prayers. We pray for 10 minutes. And if the answer hasn't arrived, we give up. We're too impatient. You remember Jesus told us, everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and he who knocks, it will be open. But the original language reads, everyone who keeps on asking and keeps on seeking and keeps on knocking. Don't pray once and quit. Jesus' teachings on prayer always emphasize persistence. It turns out that these Jews were hypocrites after all. They went to God hoping that He would rubber stamp their plans rather than truly reveal His will. And when Jeremiah tells them that they are to stay in the land, that God will protect them, that He'll build them up, that He'll have mercy on them, that He won't allow the Babylonians to harm them again, instead of obeying God, they succumb to their fears and they all tuck tail and flee to Egypt. And Jeremiah chapter 43, verse 7. You might want to mark it. To me, it is one of the saddest verses in the Bible. Jeremiah 43, verse 7. It says, So they went to the land of Egypt, for they did not obey the voice of the Lord, and they went as far as Taphanus. Guys, eight 160 years earlier, God delivered the children of Israel out of Egypt. But now, because of their rebellion, they end up right back where they started. In fact, Tapanus was the capital of Egypt at the time, and it was situated in the northeast corner of the country in a region called Goshen. The Jews returned to the very same place they had occupied when they lived in Egypt as slaves. It's sad. These Jews ran to Egypt to flee Nebuchadnezzar. <laughs> What's ironic is they didn't realize Egypt was next on the Babylonian hit list. And in 568 B.C., 18 years later, the Babylonian army invaded Egypt. And everything the Jews had feared was realized. They experienced the sword and the famine and the pestilence all over again. They should have remained in the land and obeyed the Lord. The end of chapter 43 reveals, though Jeremiah never approved of their journey to Egypt, 
he went with the Jews to continue to declare God's word. The Jews needed Jeremiah. He had been their divine watchdog for 40 years, and he was that again in Egypt. When the Jews reach Egypt, their situation worsens. The Babylonians destroy Jerusalem because of the city's idolatry. The Jews who go to Egypt fall into the same trap. Remember, Egypt was the land of idols. And there they get involved in the worship of the Queen of Heaven, the Egyptian fertility goddess Isis. And they burn incense. They trust her for protection. And in verse 19, the Jewish women boast that they've worshipped the Queen of Heaven without their husband's permission. Their idolatry had liberated them from their biblical role. Throughout history, whenever women neglect and abandon their responsibility to submit to their husband's leadership, they fall into serious error. That's not popular to say, but that's true. That's borne out through history and in God's Word. These gals felt liberated. Soon they would be enslaved again by the Babylonians. What happened to Jeremiah, we really don't know. There are many theories. Some say that he was stoned in Tapanus for speaking out against idolatry. Other theories suggest that he joined the Jews in Babylon. The scripture, though, is silent. The last picture we have of Jeremiah is him standing faithfully against an idolatrous people, witnessing for God, even when they refuse to repent. That's what he did his whole life. And that's where we see him for the last time. Chapter 45 is a flashback to the fourth year of King Jehoiakim, or 605 B.C., before the fall of the city. And it corresponds with the events that we discussed back in chapter 36. Understand, all heroes have a sidekick. The Lone Ranger, he had Tonto. Batman had Robin. Yogi had Boo Boo. Andy had Barney. The Skipper had Gilligan. All heroes have their sidekick. And Jeremiah had Baruch. Now, at times, it's hard to be a number two guy. A sidekick can get lost in the shadow of the hero. And that's why Jeremiah gave Baruch the scroll and told him to read it before the people. And that's why when he did, Baruch got excited. For Baruch viewed this as his big break. He's going to get to do something for a change. He's going to get to go into the temple. He's going to get to stand up and declare the word of God. He felt that he would finally get some time in the spotlight. But in verse 5 here in chapter 45, Jeremiah asked Baruch to check his motives. He asks him a question. Do you seek great things for yourself? And then he says, do not seek them. Shakespeare put into the mouth of one of his characters, I charge you, fleeing away ambition. By that sin, the angels fail. Baruch had ambition, which is not all bad. Baruch wanted to be successful, which is not all bad. Baruch wanted to be in the who's who of the Jews. He wanted to do something great. But the question for ambition is always, why? Why do you want to do something great? There's nothing wrong with wanting to be great for God. There's nothing wrong with wanting to accomplish something for God's kingdom. But what's your motive? The key to Jeremiah's question are the words, for yourself. Do you seek great things for yourself? What's the goal of your ambition? Is it God's glory? Or is it your glory? The prophet warns Baruch that the hammer is about to fall on Jerusalem. Judgment and adversity is right around the corner. So what if he became king himself? 
He'd be stripped of the position once the nation had been conquered by the Babylonians. And Jeremiah's warning is applicable for you and me. We live in a temporal world that's on its way out, if you haven't heard. The values of selfishness and pride and manipulation will be conquered by Jesus. One day soon the Lord will return to end this kingdom and establish His kingdom. The day of man is about over. We're approaching the day of the Lord. My wife was telling me about a story she heard of a hotel up in Quebec made of nothing but ice. It's open just a few months out of the year. Because come springtime, it's all going to be gone. That's the way this world is. It's open for just a short time. Very soon, it's all going to be gone. So what if you make a great name for yourself in this world? So what? This world is on its way out. Seek great things but not for yourself. Seek to be great in God's kingdom. And Jesus tells us how. Never forget it. Mark 10, verse 43. Jesus says, Whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. To be great for God is to serve. It's to humble ourselves and be a servant to others. When God called Jeremiah to be a prophet, he said, I ordain you a prophet to the nations. So far, he's focused on Judah. But in chapters 46 through 52, he declares God's judgment on ten nations, including the two superpowers of the day, Egypt and Babylon. The first of these prophecies begins in chapter 46, verse 2, and it's entitled, Against Egypt, concerning the army of Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, which was by the river Euphrates in Carchemish, and which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, defeated in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. The battle of Carchemish was one of the most decisive battles in all history. It was the Waterloo, the Normandy of the ancient world. You see, prior to the battle, Egypt had dominated global politics for a millennium. But east of the Euphrates River, Babylon was on the rise. And in 609 B.C., Egypt took the city of Carchemish, which was located on the Euphrates River, in order to use it as a base in the region where they could launch skirmishes against this rising Babylonian empire. Finally, though, after four years, the Babylonians had had enough, and they planned a sneak attack. And they ended up routing the Egyptians at Carchemish. And from that moment on, Egypt was a nation in decline, while Babylon was an empire on the rise. Jeremiah says that Egypt will reach for her medicines, but nothing will heal her wounds. Carchemish was the initial skirmish between Babylon and Egypt. The final triumph would not be won by the Babylonians until 568 B.C., And the rest of chapter 46 describes how Nebuchadnezzar will invade and strike the land of Egypt. The chapter closes with a promise made to Israel. Verse 28 tells us, Do not fear, O Jacob, my servant, says the Lord, for I am with you, for I will make a complete end of all the nations to which I have driven you, but I will not make a complete end of you. I will rightly correct you, for I will not leave you wholly unpunished. Here is the culmination of all human history in a nutshell. Here's where it's all headed. In the end, the Gentile nations will be destroyed, but the Jews will be refined and will be regathered to their homeland and God will establish His kingdom again in Israel. God will, in the end, prove faithful to the Jews. Chapter 47 is Jeremiah's prophecy against the Philistines, Judah's western neighbors. They too will be conquered by the invading Babylonians. Notice verses 6 and 7. Oh, you, sword of the Lord, how long until you are quiet? Put yourself up into your scabbard. Rest and be still. How can it be quiet, seeing the Lord has given it a charge against Ashkelon and against the seashore? The point being, the Lord does not like to draw his sword of judgment. 
But at times he has to. It cannot be quiet. God's justice demands his judgment on those who rebel against him. Chapter 48 is God's judgment against Moab, the people who lived east of the northern tip of the Dead Sea. They too will be sacked by the Babylonians. Verse 7 mentions Chemosh, the Moabite god, who also will be taken into captive. Chapter 49, verses 1 through 6, is God's judgment on the Ammonites. The people of Ammon, remember, were particularly antagonistic toward the Jews. It was the king of Ammon, Baalus, that hired Ishmael to kill Governor Gedaliah, hoping it would incite the fury of Nebuchadnezzar against the Jews remaining in the land. It seems also that the Ammonites had occupied the vacated Israeli territory. They had taken over the region of Gad that had been occupied by Hebrews for several hundred years. Soon, though, the tide would turn because Nebuchadnezzar would come also against Ammon. War would devastate the capital of Rabbah, and her god, Milcom, would also be taken captive. Today, the land of Ammon is occupied by the Jordanians. The capital of Jordan is Ammon, or hence Ammon. And verse 6 predicts the captives of Ammon will one day return. God's judgment against the descendants of Esau, the Edomites, begins in chapter 49, verse 7. Edom trusted in her natural fortifications. Her chief city was the rock fortress of Petra, east of the Dead Sea. The pass leading to Petra was a mile long, and it was so narrow that an army had to march through it single file. The rock corridor was so small. That's what made it so easy to defend. And yet, despite its natural advantages, in the end, Edom will also fall to the Babylonians. In verse 22, envisions the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, swooping down on Edom like an eagle attacking its prey. Judgment on Damascus in Syria is described in chapter 49, verses 23 through 27. Kedar and the kingdoms of Hazor, Bedouin tribes that roam the Arabian Peninsula, are judged in verses 28 through 33. They too will fall to King Nebuchadnezzar. The chapter finishes with a judgment against Elam, a country 200 miles east of Babylon. The Elamites were renowned archers, but we're told God will break their bows. and They'll be scattered to the four winds. Elam will also fall to Babylon. Catch this. Egypt trusted in idols. Moab in its wealth, Ammon in its opportunism, Edom its fortifications, Damascus its longevity, Arabia its remoteness, Elam its strength, its bow, its weapons. But all these nations fell to Nebuchadnezzar because God's hand was on Babylon. Remember, there were numerous occasions when Jeremiah referred to Babylon and to King Nebuchadnezzar as the servant of Jehovah. The Babylonians were God's instruments of judgment. But here's the important point. Just because God uses you doesn't make you immune from His judgment. God can use anything. God can use anyone. And just because God chooses to use you doesn't mean that He approves of all that you are or all that you do. And in chapters 50 and 51, God uses Jeremiah to declare His judgment on what was His instrument, the kingdom of Babylon. The fall of Babylon is a classic tale of antiquity. The Medes and the Persians had the city surrounded. But Babylon was prepared for an extended siege. It was an impregnable fortress with its own water supply. It had a double wall around it, 311 feet high, 87 feet thick. The Euphrates River flowed under the walls of Babylon, giving it a perpetual supply of water. But the Persian general, Ugaburu, I like that name, Ugaburu, old Ugaburu, He had a plan. He dispatched some engineers upstream. 
who diverted the water out of its riverbed. So rather than go over the walls, the Medes and the Persians came under the walls through the dried up riverbed. It took the Babylonians completely by surprise. And in essence, without firing a shot, the Medes and Persians took the city of Babylon. Throughout these chapters, Jeremiah insists that Babylon's pride and idols will be unable to save her. Babylon, Babylon has grown fat and sassy, and God is about to see to it that the mightiest nation on earth will be defeated in the most humiliating way possible. Babylon had been cruel and arrogant in her conquest of Judah, and in the end, the people of Judah will return to their land while the Babylonians will be destroyed. There is, though, a problem when we try to reconcile Jeremiah's prophecy in these chapters with ancient history. For there are aspects of the prophecy that fail to correspond with historical accounts. For example, in chapter 51, verse 58, there we're told that Babylon's broad walls will be broken and her gates burned. Neither of that happened when the Medes and Persians conquered Babylon. In chapter 50, verse 41, we're told many kings will attack her. But in history, only the Medes and Persians conquered Babylon. In chapter 50, verse 40, there we're told that her judgment will be like the overthrow of Sodom, the implication being the consumption by fire. Chapter 50, verse 39, tells us that as a result of God's judgment, Babylon will never be inhabited. And that, again, was not true of ancient Babylon. In fact, after it was conquered by the Medes and the Persians, Babylon remained a great city for centuries. In fact, 200 years later, Alexander the Great made it his capital. And this is why I believe Jeremiah's prophecy necessitates a future fulfillment. And for that reason, Bible scholars have gotten very excited about Saddam Hussein's attempts to reconstruct the ancient city of Babylon. Over the last 15 years or so, he's been building buildings on the ancient ruins. So far, it's not much more than a curiosity, but he's invested about $25 million. And who knows what the future holds? With the incredible dollars that flow from Mideast oil, Babylon could again rise from the ashes and be a great city once more. I believe, though, that there are still some prophecies yet to be fulfilled concerning Babylon. Chapter 52 is another account of the fall of Jerusalem, similar to that in chapter 39. Chapter 52 tells us that the Babylonian general in charge of the operation, Nebuzaradan, also burned down the temple and pillaged its treasures. And verses 17 through 23 are a packing list of temple furniture and implements that were taken back to Babylon. Verses 28 through 30 describe the three deportations of Jews back to Babylon. The chapter closes with a comment about King Jeconiah. Tradition says that when Nebuchadnezzar underwent his mental derangement, you remember the story in Daniel chapter 4, how that he went crazy and thought he was a beast. During that time, his son, evil Merodach, usurped the throne and served as king. After Nebuchadnezzar regained his faculties, he had evil Merodach thrown into prison where he met the former king of Judah, Jeconiah. When evil Merodach succeeded his father, one of his first decrees was to give Jeconiah some special treatment And it was just one example of how God was faithful to watch over his people, Israel, while they were in exile in Babylon. We'll learn more about the exile from a Jew who was there, a man by the name of Ezekiel. And that's coming in the next few weeks. Father, thank you for your word. And Lord, we want to be like Jeremiah. 
Of all the men in the Bible, Lord, I'm not sure I admire anyone quite the way I do Jeremiah. To minister for so long with so few tangible results to show for his efforts and yet the faithfulness that he showed. The commitment that he made to declare your word and your truth in uncompromising fashion. Thank you for Jeremiah's example. Lord, help us when we're in the mud holes of life, when we're marred down, when we've been let down by others. Help us, Lord, to learn to put our trust in you and to derive from you the strength and the joy and the encouragement that we need. We love you, Lord. We know you've made two promises to us that we will be persecuted, but we also know you'll deliver us from all our troubles. We thank you for both those promises. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said...